This episode of The Full Nerd is sponsored by SK Hynix, the maker of fastest in class SSDs. The new P41, or I'm sorry, the new Platinum P41 PCIe Gen 4 NVMe SSD exhibits technical excellence driven by unmatched speeds and reliability. The Platinum series represents the company's flagship retail lineup geared towards gamers and content creators looking to turbo boost their PC performance. Check out the link in the description in order to grab a Platinum P41 today and give your PC a huge upgrade. In this episode of The Full Nerd, AMD's Frank Azor and Robert Halleck. Welcome to a special episode of The Full Nerd. I'm your host, Gordon Maung, with AMD's Robert Halleck. Hey. And AMD's also Frank Azor. Hey, guys. Uh, Adam Patrick Murray, of course, is controlling the vertical and horizontal. I'm here. Uh, unfortunately, we couldn't all be in Computex doing this uh, live in person, but this is the next best thing. Thank, thank you so much for uh, for showing up, guys. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We got a lot of questions lined up, not not only from Corden. Uh, he likes to ask his questions. Uh, Brad couldn't be here today. I'm, I'm going to kind of regurgitate his questions the best I can. Uh, and we already got a ton of questions in the from uh, the community, so... Yeah, Gordon, why don't you kick us off? Um, there's so many questions, but I, I just got to get this out of the way uh, because I think I may have messed it up. Uh, but when I saw the Computex slides, and for, I'm going to fill it in. If, you're, if you've are if you been under a rock for the last few days, AMD showed off Ryzen 7000. Go look at all the videos and news out there, as well as talking about the chipsets, ton of new laptops. But I was under the impression it was a 170-watt TDP CPU yeah, am I wrong, Robert and Frank? Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, so what uh, what we want to clarify is that it's 170-watt socket power, which AMD, that spec is PPT for us. Uh, that doesn't mean every CPU is going to go up to 170 watts, but it is uh, 30 higher than the socket AM4 power cap, which was 142. And chiefly, we did this to improve uh, multi-thread performance as many of the higher core count chips were actually held back in overall compute performance by relatively modest socket power. Right. Okay. So it's it's just simply, but it really, the only thing you're telegraphing at this point, because for people who don't know, um, all these companies are in a high stakes poker game. They hold the cards at the very last minute. So the only thing we know is AM4. Five socket will go to 170 watts max power. That's right. What the CPUs will use to get there, whether they use it all, we 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 can't say today yet. We shall see. I, I think the the other point that I'd want to make is by raising the minimum required socket power, or the minimum spec. Uh, you you also raise the power delivery of every motherboard built to that spec. So you you get more robust power characteristics on all the boards, which we're pretty excited about as well. It should be good for uh, for people who want to experiment with overclocking, uh, people who appreciate premium board design. So should pay dividends in multiple ways. Hmm. Okay. Um, since Frank has to has a hard out uh, in about an hour, I want to talk about laptops because, you know, obviously the, the, <laughs> the meat and potatoes for the desktop crowd was there. We're going to talk about that. Hang on to those questions. But to me, the... The big news was really about all the laptops that came out at Computex. You showed off a lot of stuff and a lot of wins. 
um, to me, it's really a big a big deal because um, so many people do buy laptops. What what was your favorite laptop? Well, I can't say that, Frank. But what would <laughs> come you, on? Yeah, well, yeah, because I, I can't put you on the spot because I know the answer is going to be oh, we love all the we love everybody because yeah, that's that. you know that. that's the political answer. But I want to say it feels like there has just been such a change for AMD on laptops because I've never seen AMD had success it's had with laptops that it has today. And then especially in premium laptops, I think every single vendor I saw, they had a premium AMD laptop. Some vendors basically said you could buy this with uh, Intel or you could buy it with AMD, which was, you know, a, a real, really big change. What changed all this? Well, it's funny. I think we were talking maybe a little over a year ago and people were, you know, giving us feedback and there were a few complaints about there not being enough Ryzen based uh, gaming laptops with high end graphics from NVIDIA or from Radeon. And I explained, you know, how the product planning cycles worked and, you know, there were uh, that it took a while for people to really believe in Ryzen's performance and its potential. And um, I think here we are uh, a little over a year later and Ryzen uh, laptop adop adoption is, is it's incredible. I mean, we have hundreds upon hundreds of different models of laptops in the industry and 6000 series is ramping up really nicely. Um, I think uh, we I think we talked about over 70 uh, total Ryzen uh, laptops already in market um, with over about 150, maybe 200 or so uh, coming here um, uh, before the end of the year. So on the gaming side, you know, there's no doubt about Ryzen anymore. Um, everybody is basically planning a, a Ryzen-based gaming laptop, and in some cases, most cases, also uh, a competitors-based laptop. Um, we have some of our exclusives. They have some of their exclusives. But what's been ramping up uh, more recently, very rapidly, kind of following in the footsteps of what Ryzen witnessed over the last two, three years, are our Radeon-based uh, gaming laptops. And a similar type of story, people were like skeptical about Radeon, is it really going to perform? And I think with good reason, you know, it's been a long time since uh, Radeon has been able to compete against uh, NVIDIA at the, the whole stack from the high end all the way down to the entry. Um, I think maybe for almost a decade or so, Radeon was like at the mid range and below, not above that. And RDNA 2 and the 6000 series of graphics um, on the desktop side and on the mobile side have, have brought some pretty awesome competition now to the segment. And we're in a full out war with one another, like uh, Ryzen and, and Intel are on the CPU side. And um, we all have our value propositions and we all think we, you know, we have our angles around what makes our solution better than uh, the competitors. And uh, people are, they see the value proposition, they see the benefit of it. So we'll have over 20 advantage um, Ryzen Radeon based uh, solutions, gaming laptops in market uh, this year. And the key thing to know is that an Advantage gaming laptop, it's not just a Ryzen Radeon gaming laptop. It has to have Ryzen Radeon, all or some of our smart technologies that we've been developing for the last few years. And then above and beyond that, it has to follow a very stringent uh, design and development process that we have that's unique just for Advantage products where we define their performance levels that they must be met, sleep and resume times, latency requirements, heat, thermals, size, weight, uh, front of screen experience. So the display has to meet certain uh, requirements in order for it to deliver um, a visual experience that is fair to the graphics card that that laptop has. Uh, so 
for that many OEM partners to want to go through all those, jumping through all those hoops with us on advantage, it's just a testament to how much momentum we're building with Radeon and Ryzen. I, I, and that, to me, that is a surprise because a lot of the models I've seen, um, they, they are practically one-to-one, -one, same chassis, but just different internals. What's the motivation for a large PC vendors to actually do both? Because it feels like it's just way easier to stick with Intel. It's what people buy. They're so much bigger and they have the supply, but why, why in the world, why are the vendors going, we're going to offer the same chassis with either AMD or Intel at this point? Some of them are the same chassis. Um, a lot of laptops are not the same chassis. Uh, like if you look at the Asus ROG G14, that was something that we were so proud to win as a Ryzen laptop at CES 2020. Um, but it was Ryzen and NVIDIA. And most recently, we introduced at um, this past CES 2022 that that product exclusively moved to an advantage-based architecture. So Ryzen, Radeon, our smart technologies and going through the Advantage program. And it's only available with Ryzen and Radeon. Um, and, you know, look, it's, it's a very tough competition. I mean, the conversations behind the scenes are all around, you know, all the things you would think of. Of course, price is a factor, but performance battery life, um, compatibility features. Uh, the smart technologies are playing a huge role in folks' uh, consideration now for what laptop designs to go with. But more often than not, um, they're having to offer less what I call parallel configurations, which are same chassis. Let me just offer a, a AMD and a competitor's uh, component because the complexity of these portfolios is expanding significantly. And the resources to work on these uh, portfolios, these ever-expanding portfolios, they can't grow fast enough to be able to um, have so many different products with all these different configurations. So more and more OEMs are, are placing bets based on different respective uh, product categories that they're going after. So, you know, if you're going after the highest performance, doesn't matter at all what the battery life is, you don't care about weight, you don't care about heat, you don't care about any of those things. Well, this is probably a combination that is uh, that is better suited for you. If you're looking for a more ba balanced platform, this is a combination of parts that are better suited for you. And if you want the like the extreme battery life offering that's out there, the absolute best, you want the best security, so on and so forth, this is a better uh, offering for you. So, because our products are so differentiated in a lot of ways now, um, on the CPU side and on the GPU side, different combinations of components and platform technologies uh, are are catering better to different customer segments and what they're using the product for. Um, higher mobility, there's a combination of components and a solution that's better for that. Um, you know, all performance, no, no, uh, no battery life, no other consideration, basically desktop replacement, there's a basket of components that are better for that. Um, and OEMs are making those decisions accordingly. Uh, but the days of, it's as simple as who's got the fastest frames per second, who has the fastest single-threaded and multi-threaded performance, um, and you know that's the winner. Those are very primitive, I would say, as compared to how much more sophisticated and complex the the, the market has evolved to. Yeah, I, and you're definitely playing to your your efficiencies because I mean the battery life has been pretty impressive so far in Ryzen six thousand. Yeah. Robert and the Ryzen team have done just a remarkable job in architecting uh, a class of CPUs that perform exceptionally well, but that didn't throw power and efficiency and 
all day battery life out the window to get there. I mean, they're doing it through genuinely sophisticated engineering and, and I mean, just building a phenomenal part. So I, I do have a question from the uh, a friend of the show, CauseMC, going back to uh, your smart storage uh, or the, the, the smart platform stuff. Uh, how does smart storage vary from the uh, standard direct storage API? Are we going to uh, see competition between RTXIO and smart storage? Um, you'd have to ask NVIDIA about RTXIO. I'm not an expert on RTXIO, to be very honest, uh, but I think it's a little vague what's out there around it. And uh, we haven't seen it in action yet. Um, to be fair, we haven't seen smart access storage. You guys haven't seen smart access storage in action yet either, but I have, and it works very well. Um, the primary differences between direct storage and smart access storage is that direct, think of, well, first of all, smart access storage uses direct storage. So that's really important to know. It's not a replacement for it. It is something that we built that takes advantage of direct storage. It uses the compression algorithms and APIs that direct storage promotes and supports and endorses and asks ISVs to design to, and um, it's fully compatible with them. And uh, what we do a little differently though with smart access storage is because we own the entire platform from an architecture perspective end to end, from CPU all the way to storage subsystem, all the way to graphics, that allows us to um, create, why don't we say more efficient streamlines between uh, the game content and the, G the GPU itself. We can avoid some parts of the overall PC subsystem um, in order to reduce latency, increase, per increase performance and remove bottlenecks. Um, when it comes to uh, decompressing game assets and streaming game assets on the, the GPU. Direct storage um, is, again, we support it, we're using it as part of smart access storage, but it's more of a ubiquitous solution that has to work across a lot of different combinations of hardware that are out there. And those combinations may include mixed configurations. Let's say uh, AMD CPU and somebody else's graphics card. And that's getting more and more complex nowadays, right? You're gonna have three graphics card partners. You have two CPUs that may even get more complex. So because it's more of a, highly compatible ubiquitous solution there's more overhead built in in order for it to be compatible so there's more cpu calls there are more system memory calls that it has to do in order for it to work um, there's some more decompression and management that is done in the cpu um, versus in our solution it's a direct pipe from nvme to dgpu with those bottlenecks and that overhead removed does that mean we may actually potentially see performance advantages between the three. So you have sort of plain direct storage, you have the NVIDIA flavor, you have the AMD flavor. Could there be, is it possible we'll see either possibly one be faster or is it, is it, or developers will go full on, we're going to do the AMD one. We're not going to even work with anything else. Is that kind of the weird? We, we, um, what we're trying to do is design what, what, what we've done is design smart access storage, uh, like we do a lot of things here at AMD to be as open as, as possible from a compatibility perspective. So that's why we're using direct storage and we're going to work with direct storage titles and we're going to optimize to work with um, direct storage. We, we don't have any intent of developing our own algorithm, our own compression API, because we don't want to create a wall garden, another wall garden in the industry. So 
Well, ideally what we would like to have happen, and this is how we've designed smart access storage, is that if you have a direct storage compatible game and you have a all AMD uh, desktop or laptop, um, we'll have an a foundational infrastructure in place so that we can, uh, let's say, avoid some of those, um, those, uh, uh, those routes that add that latency and, that, um, and those, some of those bottlenecks because of compatibility. And we'll kind of shortcut and allow the NVMe to directly disc, uh, um, send data over to the uh, to the uh, DGPU for decompression. So that's our architecture. That's our approach: is full compatibility. But when we can take a shortcut because we have the end-to-end -end, uh, platform, we're going to enable that shortcut to be taken. Uh, I do have a follow-up question. Uh, Red Rock in the chat asks, uh, does uh, SAS need a minimum spec SSD or NVMe? Yes, very good question. Um, so, you know, part of why we're doing this is because of that very uh, need. So we have an authorized vendor list of parts that we're developing right now with NVMe drives and controllers that are meeting our performance requirements uh, around smart access storage. Just because you have a PCI Gen 4 uh, or the upcoming Gen 5 drives that David talked about during uh, Computex, if you saw the keynote, it uh, doesn't mean that those drives are going to be able to keep up with the, uh, the performance demands of, uh, and capabilities of smart access storage. So something folks should understand is uh, today, a lot of the reason why your NVMe drive isn't able to fully capitalize on its theoretical performance capabilities is because there's bottlenecks along in the data fabric. And those bottlenecks exist in different parts of the PC. There's just things from that data to get from point A to point Z that aren't as fast as what this can push and what this can receive on both ends of that A and that Z. Um, so that oftentimes impacts your, 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 your theoretical versus real performance. Uh, and I'm trying to explain this in the simplest terms as possible. Um, what will happen with smart access storage is once you remove all those paths from point A to point Z that are your obstacles, that are your bottlenecks, suddenly your NVMe drive can become the bottleneck because the DGPU can receive the data extremely fast. But if your NVMe drive was designed from the get-go counting on these bottlenecks kind of being along the data path, then maybe you didn't put as much performance in this because you knew it was going to get wasted. So you may have used a slower controller, you may have used um, not the most premium parts and not have optimized your product for the highest theoretical limit that it can deliver because it wouldn't make sense to you. You have all these bottlenecks along the way. Um, I mean, a, a, a great analogy would kind of be like, if you can only go 55 miles per hour in the expressway and just say you really only did that, you weren't a speeder, then having a car that went 150 miles per hour was a waste, you know, but today you can go above 55, you just can't do it necessarily legally. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. But that's my point. So what we're doing is we're making sure that we have 150 mile per hour cars that haven't been artificially or by design limited at the SSD level, the NVMe level, so that they can perform as intended with uh, smart access storage. So that's part of what you get when you see a smart access storage enabled configuration, uh, whether it's advantage or not. If it has the feature enabled, you'll be able to know that that, um, that storage, that NVMe drive passed our performance requirements. Hmm. It's very classic PC too, because a lot of vendors, they will put the spec on the box and they know full well that nobody ever can hit the 
limits of that so they don't really bother to go to the maximum it sounds like we're about to get where to the point where you actually will care if your drive really can hit full speeds of, uh, of the interface so well what's really cool too about what we're doing with smart access storage is um, we're designing it for streaming as well and i don't mean streaming like what we're doing right now i mean data streaming from the nvme drive and from the game itself so today what happens oftentimes, and every game is coded differently and all that, so don't take this as applying 100%, but oftentimes you'll send a gigabyte chunk or a half a gigabyte chunk over to the data fabric and then send it out into the DGPU to decompress or to the CPU to decompress and then maybe even to the DGPU to decompress. Um, what we're gonna be able to do with smart access storage and again, using Microsoft Direct Storage is chop that up into small little pieces and uh, and be able to kind of stream it like you would stream video. So you're receiving the pieces that you need in the context of what you're playing the game at, and you're getting the pieces kind of just slightly before you need them, if you will, in much smaller chunks. Um, with the purpose of the benefit being now, let's say you go from a gigabyte at a time chunk that you're trying to transfer and you're trying to get a huge gigabyte through a pipe that's this big. Now you're waiting for that to get transferred, to de get decompressed, to get transferred again. Um, if you cut it up into little pieces, it's going to flow a lot more efficiently. And uh, the other benefit that we're doing with smart access storage is we're making use of our smart access memory technology, um, which if you remember what that is, it's our optimization on top of the PCI Express rebar uh, uh, implementation, which allows the DGPU to have all of its memory fully accessible. Prior to this technology, you were confined to about 256 megabytes. So in a smart access storage world, had we not had smart access memory, then all we'd be able to transfer at a time would be 256 megabyte chunks, which if everything was streamed and everything was 256 megabytes or below, that would be great, but that's not real. That's not practical. You're gonna have some games trying to transfer 512 or any size between, right? Um, so smart access memory gives us the ability to use all of the DGPU's memory to handle a chunk as small as 256K to one that's whatever the maximum size is of your graphics card's uh, frame buffer. Hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool. It's a pretty sophisticated kind of tech and but the interoperability and everything between it and SAM or smart access memory, we call it SAM internally. It's just, it's pretty cool. It's really, really well thought out from the team. Yeah, I and I, I'm super excited for it because you know, for the longest time, we've had so many cores and incredibly fast SSDs, and you're basically waiting for the the game to decompress single-threaded textures and assets at a very, very slow rate. And it's just like, it's always felt like, why do I have all this fast hardware if the game doesn't take advantage of it? It finds like we're going to get, we're really going to get there finally in a lot of ways. Yeah, and then the, the data pipe is, if you think about it, you have the drive. The data has to go to the IOD, then it goes up to the CPU, then from the CPU, it goes to system memory, then from system memory, it goes to the IOD, then from the IOD, it goes to the PCI Express bus, and the PCI Express bus, it goes to the DGPU. And really up to now, the decompression is done in the CPU, and no offense to my friend Robert, um, CPU has been amazing at decompressing these game assets. GPUs are better. <laughs> DGPU is better at decompressing them. It has, uh, you know, for a ton of different reasons. So just moving the, de the decompression from the CPU to the G DGPU is a huge performance improvement. 
and then starting to bypass some of that path and going direct from A to Z, like we're doing smart access storage, just, I mean, my, my goal, my vision with the team, our, our ideal vision is load times get eliminated. You never feel them. Um, things are loading, but you will never have a cutscene. You'll never have filler in a game because of load times. Everything is just instant. Hmm. Now, keep in mind, the game developer has to design the game to take advantage of all these technologies, the compression, uh, the APIs, direct storage, all these things. Um, but we'll get there over time as the games start to come out with it and they see the benefits of it. Right. No, it sounds really amazing, you know, because it's it's something so long overdue on, on PC gaming. <laughs> Level loads are pretty stupid, so... Uh, can I? I'm gonna I'm gonna ask a uh, CPU Computex stuff because I've just like been sitting here just like I gotta ask this now. All right. Uh, the game demo. So you guys, for people who don't know, AMD showed off uh, a, a Ryzen 7000 part running in AM5 hitting 5.5 gigahertz. Um, there's an open question it's like, well, was it overclocked? Is that just you know what what did because you, you didn't really say what the was this running, you know, liquid chillers? How did how did you do? Uh, can you, what can you say about that five point five gigahertz uh, demo? How many threads, and then also what the circumstances of that were? Sure, no problem. Uh, we used a two hundred and eighty millimeter Acetec water cooler, so nothing exotic. It's just you know a dual one hundred and forty loop that you can buy from Amazon or Newegg or wherever you get your parts. Uh, I was running an AMD reference motherboard, so one of our internal um, you know, socket AM5 motherboards. It's a 16 core prototype part uh, built, I think it was in late April, early May. Um, and we just plugged it in and ran it. It is not an overclocked part. It, it's just, that's the natural frequency of that particular prototype. Um, so in the game, we were running most of the threads around 5.5. It depends on the game load depends on the scene of course clock speeds fluctuate up and down so somewhere between 5.2 and 5.5 was pretty common on all the threads playing that game so i want to reassure people that this was uh, nothing exotic in terms of cooling uh, nothing exotic in terms of part selection or config or overclocking it is exactly what you see we plugged in a ryzen 7000 series part and played a game and that's the frequency Wow. Okay, that's good to know. Because I mean, a lot of people are like, "Oh, that must have been overclocked." It's like, nope. Hmm. Okay. Um. Can I ask about chipsets? Yeah. Sure. Uh. So there have been a lot of rumors for again. So there were three different chipsets introduced. I'm just going to fill people in who have not been watching. X six six seventy E Extreme, X six seventy, and then B six fifty. On the X670 uh, Extreme, you're basically saying it's PCIe everywhere. I mean, a PCIe 5 everywhere. Mm -hmm. Is that a multi-chip solution? Uh, there's been some rumors that it's it's it takes multiple chips to get to the, the lanes on that one. Well, well, we'll get to the exact breakdown of how the chipsets are put together later in the summer. But um, the, the CPU itself has 24 PCIe Gen 5 lanes that are usable right? Uh, 28 total in the chip itself. So uh, the X670E motherboards will have, um, you know, primary graphics slots will be Gen 5. 
uh, one storage slot, at least one will be Gen 5. Um, and then for the just the normal X670, the non-extreme one, uh, the Gen 5 on graphics is optional. And if it's there, it'll be the top primary slot, but you're always guaranteed one storage slot will be Gen 5. Yeah, that was my other sort of question because I uh, the slide says up to 24 um, PCIe 5 gen, yeah. gen lanes. I didn't know whether that was like total system counting uh, in the in the south bridge as well as the CPU, but you're saying the CPU itself have 24, 20, right. well, total 28, because you're going to use some of that for the interconnects, so. That's right. Wow, that's a ton of PCIe 5. Yeah, uh, our, our thinking was, um, you know, coming off the back of the PCI Gen 4 generation for X570, uh, there was one group of customers who weren't ready to make the jump to Gen 4, but wanted the premium motherboards uh, for build quality reasons, overclocking reasons, that's all fine and good. But then there was a, a separate set who was just like, well, I'm, I don't have Gen 4 yet, but I want to. So I might as well just prep now and get it. Um, Gen 5 also has a cost adder, just like Gen 4 did. There's uh, retimers and redrivers that need to go on the motherboard to support that signaling rate. And that has a cost component to it. So we split X570 into two chipsets so people had more price point choices um, to pick a motherboard that made sense for their budget. And Gen, Gen 5 components as well, whatever you plug into that motherboard, you should probably expect they're gonna be at a premium cost and a premium price sure. as well as, as usually they are. So it's yeah. overall, it's a more expensive platform and ecosystem even beyond just the, the, the motherboard itself. Right, because your competitors, when they introduced Gen 5, people sort of had like mini heart attacks because the prices were pretty astounding. But it, so it sounds like X670E, if you want absolute guarantee of a full by 16 Gen 5 graphics card plus storage, mm -hmm. and then for uh, plain X670, the motherboard vendor can do Gen 5 for graphics. Or, yes. or they, or they don't. They can, or they. It's not mandatory that they do it. I guess that's right. I'm. I guess I'm a little confused because I'm trying to think of like how a vendor is going to go. Like, well, we have uh, X670e, which is like our most awesome. It's got everything. Mm -hmm. it has Gen Five for graphics, but then they're also going to have another one that's non-e that still has Gen Five. Is that up to the board design, or just simply a marketing decision in that case? <laughs> It's, market, it's one part marketing, one part board design. So to enable Gen 5, those slots, uh, be it NVMe or PCI Express slot, it does need some Gen 5 componentry on the board to support the signaling rate. So that's the board design piece. And that dovetails into marketing-ish discussions, which are product cost. Um, what, it, what do people want to pay for a motherboard? So typically, I think you'll see that X670 non-E will just go with Gen 4 on graphics and Gen 5 on storage. That's probably the most common thing that you'll see. But um, there will be premium X670 options where the top slot only for one GPU is Gen 5. That's also within the realm of possibility. At the end of the day, our, our goal was to get more motherboard designs in market at more price points. And that separating the chipsets out like that will give the motherboard man, manufacturers flexibility to, to do that. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we do have about how many motherboard SKUs exist out there. You know, it's like 
500 for AM4. Yeah, so you'll have every combination and flavor that anybody could possibly think of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we do have a follow-up question from uh, Dr. Ian Cutris of Tech Tech Potato fame. Uh, it says, okay. uh, are those uh, 28 lanes on the CPU all PCIe 5, or are there only 24 PCIe 5 and the others are PCIe 4? All 28 lanes are Gen 5 ready. All right. So, so I mean, uh, let me clarify one more thing. Of course, you can fall back on any one of those lanes to any other transfer rate. like. It may be Gen 5 capable on the CPU, but if you only implement Gen 4 on the motherboard, then you would get a Gen 4 slot uh, in terms of transfer rates. But natively, the SOC supports Gen 5 and all 28 things. Yeah, and I think you touched on that briefly, but for folks that don't understand this, um, to deliver Gen 5 to the end port itself between the CPU and the port, there is a series of components and, uh, and investments that need to be made to make that possible. And that adds up to cost. Redrivers are something that is uh, uh, a key component, for example, that you need to put in order to extend that signal all the way to a PCI Express uh, mm -hmm. port, which you know is millimeters away, inches away from the CPU itself, the IOD itself. So um, that's why you may have a PCI Express 5 enabled CPU, but you may not have a motherboard and a port that is PCI Express 5 enabled. Um, it's going to be a matter of what you pay for is what you get, as usual. Mm -hmm. But all the, and for people who don't, are still trying to wrap their hand around it, basically you buy a, a Ryzen 7000, you get all the Gen 5 lanes. If you cheap out in your motherboard, you're not going to get all the Gen 5 features. So that's a practical way to think about it, too, I think. Uh, I have a question also about Gen 5. I mean, it's interesting because it breaks down like all three new chipsets, you know, the top end gets Gen 5, the, the middle and the lower end optional, uh, well, on the middle one, it's optional Gen 5. And then the B650, which is sort of the, the, the lower cost version, there's no Gen 5 for graphics, but all three of them, it's mandatory to get PCIe 5 storage. That's right. That's right. Why go so hard in on Gen 5 uh, for storage and not for, for graphics? I think it's just the nature of how the different device categories have responded over the years to uh, increases in bandwidth. Even, even today, modern GPUs don't suffer all that much being on PCI Gen 3 in an X16 slot. You know, there's like a one to two percent difference between Gen three by sixteen and Gen four by sixteen, whereas on the storage front, your sustained transfer rate goes up seventy five to one hundred percent as you jump from three to four PCI three to four. So there's a clear benefit in uh, sequential read and write for storage, but the benefit of of graphics to gaming performance going from Gen three to Gen four or four to five that's less clear. And so as we're thinking about where do we want to allocate the, the mixture of budget on this chipset, on these motherboards, what's going to give people the most benefit the fastest, storage is it. Those drives are coming end of the summer, early fall, and they'll be ready to go with these new chipsets. Uh, graphics will take longer and even then maybe of uh, marginal benefit for, for gaming customers. The key thing to keep, remember about a graphics card, a modern graphics card today with uh, a high amount of frame buffer, let's say eight gigabytes or more, 
is there's very little data from a rendering perspective that is transmitted over the PCI Express bus. So the majority of the information comes from the storage drive, the assets like we talked about with smart asset storage. They, they go through the whole data fabric and everything. And once they get to the DGPU, that data stays in the graphics card by and large. So your, your PCI Express um, interface, and then let's say, again, a high frame rate buffer card is not that relevant from a graphics performance perspective. That's why the numbers that Robert's saying, one to 2% are what we typically see. But for all the other reasons we talked about, getting the data from point A to that graphics card, mm -hmm. that's still a, a, an opportunity for a lot of improvement. And that's why this makes sense. That's right. Hmm. Yeah, I, I just, because I'm just thinking about the mix because the competition, you know, uh, has 16 lanes of Gen 5, um, which can be split. They can do like an 8, you know, 8, 8 plus 8 or all 16. Mm -hmm. on, on AM5, you can do a full-on... 16 you know plus plus four for the for the ssd it just seems like i'm just trying to think of why it's so over engineered in a lot of ways because i mean frankly a lot of people would be fine with the you know 16 lanes of gen 4 for graphics but to still be able to dedicate a full 16 for gen 5 for graphics i'm sometimes it feels like that's just I, mostly for marketing you know no 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 can i take that one robert yeah go ahead um, the key difference between us and uh, our platform competitor, uh, who you're referencing, Intel, is you have to look at the longevity of the AM4 platform. Um, we have made a commitment, and we I think we've exceeded it, if you ask me, uh, for this platform to be very relevant for a very long amount of time. And uh, AM5, you know, a similar commitment has been made as well. So. Our competitor tends to update their platform every year, um, which can be pretty frustrating. You can't put any of the new CPUs typically inside that platform. Uh, you can't typically use new PCI Express art, uh, um, technologies like NVMEs as they come out. So while it may seem a little over-engineered today, even though you have all that optionality that we talked about, I don't think people are going to be saying that in two years or three years. And that platform will still be relevant in that time frame. Why not just introduce a new socket every two years and new chipset? <laughs> I had to yeah. say it. I had to say it. <laughs> That's, uh, that seems like a lot of waste, in my opinion. Um, uh, Adam, do you actually? I'm, I'm going to ask another one since I'm just going to keep. I'm going to keep yeah. throwing mine out here because I, I got. I, I, got I do have some from Brad. I've got, I got so much in the chat too, but go for it. Uh, I, I have a question about the USB support. Um, what is it? So basically, it's USB four base spec. It sounds like, or is it just too early to say? I I can understand the, but the USB description was clearly a lot of USB, but twenty gig USB. I mean, it doesn't sound like there's uh, support for forty gig or Thunderbolt. Sir, too early to say. I'll just okay. leave it at that. Okay. Uh, well, to uh, I'm gonna get to uh, the RDA two. Uh, that Brad has a bunch of kickoff questions. We got a lot of questions in the chat too about that. Uh, Brad's first question uh, is uh, says uh, adding RDNA two GPUs to the I/O die means that Ryzen CPUs will finally have integrated graphics and not need to be paired with discrete graphics. Why make that move now after going GPU list during the AM four era? Mm. So one one thing I want to clear up uh, is 
that we still think of the Ryzen 7000 series as a CPU. Uh, and it, yeah, it's taxonomic, but it, it's important to understand that the graphics cores in that IO die, there aren't many. Uh, the purpose of adding graphics is threefold. Uh, one, it greatly expands these products into the commercial market where they don't buy discrete at all, right? They just want to turn it on, have video encode, decode, and light up some displays for, for office work. And that's what the GPU and the IO die will offer. So that's a huge business opportunity for us on the Ryzen Pro side as we start uh, migrating these components over to that business. Uh, the second thing is uh, for diagnostic purposes, how do you know you have a bad graphics card? Well, you would have to swap in another graphics card, but at least with Ryzen, because of those display outs and the graphics cores you have, you can do a little bit of troubleshooting on your enthusiast part with the graphics. And then thirdly, we were thinking about users who are buying a discrete card and it's still in transit in the mail, but all the other hardware has arrived first. And we've all sat there looking at a pile of components. Oh gosh, I don't have a GPU. I can't set this up <laughs> and that'll go away with the Ryzen 7000 series. You'll be able to you know, turn it on, plug in a display, boot it up, get it set up and then plug in the GPU when you get it. So uh, the other point I would want to make is that we're still going to do APUs as you know them with big graphics. So APUs, big graphics, CPUs, little graphics, and that will be our strategy going forward. Yeah. Can I add a fourth to that? Yeah, um, of course. We're developing a lot of uh, smart technologies that make use of integrated graphics in varying different ways. Um, and there are things that we're able to do with the technology like SmartShift Eco, for example, which is a laptop technology today, but I'll, I'll give you, a, it, it'll explain where I'm going with this, where we turn off the discrete graphics and you can run the, the notebook just off of the integrated graphics um, and say you want to do that because you want less heat, you want longer battery life, even if you're playing a game. Um, you want less uh, fan noise, you want lower power consumption. There's all these different benefits to it. Uh, well, with this architecture now, because we have, again, that, that thin kind of, uh, discre uh, not discrete, that thin integrated graphics in the Ryzen 7000 series, it's going to allow us to bring more of these types of smart technologies over to desktops as well. So those customers can get some of these benefits. Um, sure. That's probably not the best example because our GP, our DGPUs on idle are already, you know, very, very low power. They consume like, you know, sub 50 watts typically. Um, but even then the sub 50, for example, what if that sub 50 could be five watts or less or zero? Um, having that integrated graphics will allow us to be able to take advantage of things like that, um, which you can't do if you have to have that discrete GPU lit up 100% of the time, even in an idle power state. Um, and the thing to keep in mind about discrete GPUs is typically the higher total TDP they are, the kind of range of minimum power um, kind of moves a little bit with the, the high max power. It's rare to be able to go from one watt to 300 watts of TDP range within a piece of silicon, for example. It's kind of like a window that moves a little bit. And that window gets a little bigger mostly bigger over time, but um, this is going to allow us to have a 300 watt DGPU um, inside of a, an A plus A system, a Ryzen and Radeon based system, 
and turn that thing almost completely off, if not entirely off. And when you're doing like what we're doing right now, those fans are going to be off. There's no heat. There's no power consumption whatsoever coming out of that DGPU. As soon as you fire something up that'll benefit from the DGPU, it dynamically turns on and you get all those benefits seamlessly. Wow. So basically like laptop idle power, you know, six watts with the screen on, you know. So. Well, yeah, but just again, keep in mind, right? Everything else, yeah. The the, the desktop G, uh, CPUs in that window are higher TDP, yeah. so you're not going to get laptop necessarily level idles. Yeah. But uh, from a DGPU perspective, you're going to start to be able to do some of that stuff, yeah. Yeah, I imagine the GPU just being constantly running is, is, is a big chunk of um, desktop idle power. So that's, it's still yeah, pretty significant. We're not that bad. I mean, like a Radeon right now, I think I have a, well, I shouldn't talk about the GPU I have, um, but like mine has. <laughs> no, no, please talk about it, Frank. We want to hear about it. <clears throat> I have a 6,500 XT, of course, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, but it, it's like, uh, I, I have a higher perform, a higher power one than that. And um, it's like sub 40 Watts typically on idle. Uh, hmm. Uh, but that's me like on teams and stuff so it's probably not 100 percent idle yeah uh, so it's pretty it's pretty low power but 40 watts i mean you know if i'm working 10 hours a day and then playing again a, a couple hours uh a week after that that adds up over time you know and that's that adds up to a total cost of ownership for that power consumption um so it's again it's just a a, a fourth level benefit i think the, the top three that robert talked about are, are probably the more valuable ones but you'll see us take advantage of that with yeah. our smart technologies as well, well that's cool uh i do have a, a follow-up clarification of from brad others had asked about this uh two parts uh are the uh, rdna gpus on the io dies available on all of the non-g ryzen 7000 chips that's part one uh part two is uh if if so are there going to be varying levels of performance uh, so the, the graphics compute units are a common feature of the IO die for the 7000 series, our new IO die for that generation. So any any new Ryzen 7000 series that uses that IO die, which they all do for clarity's sake, uh, will have the graphics. Uh, but because that graphics is pretty lightweight in terms of uh, compute units and overall die size, there's not going to be you know, big differences in, in the configuration. Our intent is... To provide something that's convenient, quality of life enhancement, video encode, decode, display, uh, and just you know enough to to get the uh, the display running for office use or general productivity. Yeah, you're not. So to be really crystal clear, you're not endorsing it as a gaming integrated nope. graphic solution. Unlike nope. on mobile, which we are, we showed gaming performance, we showed FSR compatibility, RSR compatibility. It's a pretty viable on mobile integrated graphics solution on the current uh, Ryzen mm -hmm. 6000s. Um, but on the CPU, people need to think of it as an even slimmer configuration than that. It's just like what Robert said. It's to light up a display and for you to do non-gaming, non-GPU intensive work. Um, it, they should have very low expectations. <laughs> okay, yeah. So some, some people in the ch chat were, were asking about that, like a, a Adrian Forey. Hope I pronounced your name right. Uh, like, you know, will it have FreeSync built in? Uh, is it going to have uh, FSR enabled, mm. uh, you know, on it? But but it I, will I have the. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Gordon. I was just going to, but it will have the media encode decode engines that were. That's used. that's the primary benefit. Like, uh, so internally we've got uh, two blocks of IP. One's called VCN, which handles video encode decode. The other is DCN, which handles. Uh, display capabilities, you know, what HDMI spec, how many displays, what display port spec. 
And to light that IP up and use it, you need a certain amount of compute cores or uh, graphics compute units. So really for us, we wanted the displays and the encode decode. And it's almost like the compute units are a, a happy accident. I don't know if I should call it that way. It's a happy accident uh, that makes life a lot more convenient and certainly uh, enhances the applicability of these products to the commercial market. Like I, I know we're talking, you know, I'm a gamer, Frank's a gamer, we're all gamers here, so that's our bread and butter. But uh, I cannot overstate the importance of the non-gaming market to the growth of Ryzen overall as a business. And we do leverage our CPUs across markets and uh, sometimes that means capabilities uh, that really matter to commercial show up in consumer. It's like, why does Ryzen have ECC support? Well, you know, you don't really need it in the consumer space, but commercial customers love it. And, and so it's, it's that line of thinking. Cool. Okay. Yeah, go ahead and word. Uh, I, I, I was going to ask, can, is it, is it essentially the same media engine we're seeing in Ryzen 6000? So we'll have AV1 decode any, or is it actually a, a newer spin of that, uh, media engine? It's the same as far as I'm aware. Don't know if I got myself in trouble for saying that, but <laughs> I'm going to say, yes, it's the same. Uh, we'll, yeah, we'll see how it goes sure from the there. Too. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> well, that, even if you say it's the same and it's actually a bonus later, that's like, oh, okay. That's, that's a safer, that's a safer route to take in dragon, <laughs> dragon quest. There. Sure. So that was the right answer. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh go ahead Adam. <laughs> uh sorry um going back to to some of the questions uh on the chat we had uh some uh, a very deep technical one uh i don't know if uh we want to get into it but mike brazone a right. uh, friend of the show said uh, uh what does simulation say about tsmc seven to five transistor endurance and what actual density increase did amd take in relation to the 80 percent available subject manufacture manufacturability and yield yeah robert you should answer that 100 percent. go for it okay uh <laughs> so we do intend to discuss uh performance power and area metrics of seven to five not yet not a computex but we will we know that's a, a topic of curiosity uh you have started to see the frequency piece of that significant frequency uplift going from seven to five uh, that's one part architecture, one part process. Um, so I know it's frustrating that I'm not answering yet, but I assure you we will have that discussion over the summer. Yeah, too, a little too early, folks. He also can't talk about rising 8,000 yet. So that's that's uh, that's well, a big negative. We here. did have somebody asking about, you know, RDNA 3, you know. it's. Uh... I can answer that. Oh, please. Yeah, RDNA 3 is going to launch in the future. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was an easy one. Uh, we, we do have a, a, a bunch of good questions about the uh, AI acceleration. Uh, new, newer tech said, uh, is there an actual AI acceleration unit inside of the 7000 series, or is it just supported AI instructions? Mr. Marty asks, uh, with the new CPU supporting AI instructions, can we expect integrated image enhancements uh, on laptops like they are on phones? What, what can you tell us about the, the uh, AI uh, that, that you mentioned during the presentation? I will say they are instruction extensions on the CPU. And we'll leave it at that. Okay, and uh, I will translate. That means uh, he does not want to get in trouble. 
So that's too early. Sorry, soon, too too soon again. But I, it is interesting that, that you're making that push there because AI on client actually seems like it's actually starting to become a real thing finally. So I think so. I mean, that that is, you know, takes me to the meta point of, of Ryzen. There are lots of architectural opportunities that we could have picked up along the way, going from Zen 1 to 4. But we've always chosen a particular time to do something. And I think history has vindicated us overall on when we've decided to do it. Like we, you know, we're trying to bring architectural features in at the right time, at the right cost, at the right power, at the right performance. And that is what makes Zen physically smaller than Alder Lake or Skylake architectures. That is what has allowed us to stay ahead on, on die size, uh, move to chiplets, uh, produce better battery life, better power efficiency, because we are very choosy about the things we bring into our chip and when. And instructions like AI acceleration are uh, part and parcel of that strategy. It is intentional. No, and it's a good point because, I mean, originally we saw, you know, AI acceleration built into very early Intel parts and people were very confused by why, yeah. you know, it came in and it was in really, there was nothing you could run on it for years and years. So it was, a, it was a tough choice. That's right. And yeah, nothing always a balance. is free. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nothing is free. That's for sure. And it's always a balance of putting something in that isn't free to Robert's point. Um, and then having the use cases uh, emerge to take advantage of that. And then at the same time, putting it in so that there's motivation for the use case developers to develop the use cases uh, for the technology. So it's just, it's a balance and it's a, it's a position of, that's challenging. I mean, you know, these decisions, Robert, that you're talking about, right? Like how far in advance do you guys make those decisions? Uh, typically four to five years. Yeah. yeah. So it's not easy. <laughs> yeah. And I, to me, the, the amazing thing about that is, and, and frankly, you know, I'm not just butt kissing here, but to think that you could sort of predict where the market's going to be in five years, predict where everything's going to be in five years, you know, launch this product and hopefully have it touch down and actually be in the right place is incredibly hard to do because you it are. It, it's not. It, yes. <laughs> it's incredibly hard to do. That's why Robert and I are bald like you, Gordon. Um, but yes. uh, the, the other thing that we just keep in mind, like we don't just wait and have to guess where the market is going to be. Then we do get to drive the market there and to some extent, right? Us and the ecosystem that we're partnered with. So it's a little bit of, of both of those things, but there has to be a willingness from the ecosystem to meet you there. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that can be a challenge sometimes because, you know, it's hard to make an investment in something if you're one of those ecosystem partners when the return is un unproven. Um, and that's, that's some, oftentimes is part of the challenge as well as trying to bring that ecosystem along with us as to where we think that future is going to be and mm -hmm. making sure that if they're not there, that, you know, we don't waste our time and resources and, and so on. So it's incredibly hard, um, but we don't just have to, we, we do get to make the market is what I'm trying to say to some extent. As yeah, well. no, I, I, I hear you. I mean, they definitely, they take your cues, but I'm just sort of like, sometimes it just goes really badly wrong for some companies where yeah. they think 
in five, they start a product design in three years when it lands, they get out of the capsule and the planet has been taken over by apes, right? And you just, you just like, what happened? You know, and, and it's just wrong. You just, you don't know. And it's an embarrassing look sometimes. I mean, I don't want to pick on anybody, but Rocket Lake was, was launched before Ryzen, you know, before Zen 3 and probably would have been a good product if Zen 3 never came out, but you know, it's just, it just didn't well, this is the, the this is what makes the industry so fascinating right now. When we talk about competition is good, the, the really good reason why it's good, aside from all the things that are obvious to people, is because that process that Robert's talking about now, you can't take things for granted anymore. You can't just like, ah, let's just throw stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. We don't have to worry about any competition. It really challenges your people and your organization to get very refined in in their planning and Mm -hmm. making really tough decisions and getting an enormous amount of data uh, ahead of time and making better decisions um, than you were before. When there's no competition, you get a little careless. Uh, And that's what I think we've seen for a really long time pre-Ryzen and even new kind of RDNA too, as we've seen it now. And it's, it's starting to really make things so much more interesting. The innovation, the 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 risks that companies are taking the big bets in a, in a lot of ways are even bigger than they they were over the last 10 years it's a, for some companies um so as you know i i think we're most of us are in this and we've known each other a really really long time because we love it and we're fans just as much as we've been privileged to be able to work in it you get to see it on both ends and it's just fascinating what we're going through right now yeah no it's amazing frank i think are we at your you yeah, gotta I, pop I'm sorry, out guys. Yeah, I, actually, I do have to run. Yeah, th- thank you so much. Uh, I do got one super chat from Baghdaddy. Gave us $10. Said, uh, my Intel 6700 uh, HQ Asus laptop is screaming for an AMD replacement. Frank, if you could swing by later and drop off a dev machine, I'm home for the day. So there you go. Uh, that's where we need to go to. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be right there on my way to my next meeting. Just wait for me outside. <laughs> yeah, right. Just open arms. Uh, and and one more super chat from VC Jester. He gave us $20. Thank you so much. Said, uh, I suffer from chronic aging with early symptoms of getting old. My doctors believe it is terminal. My last dying wish is that the Full Nerd crew would someday be able to interview live on the show Her Majesty, Her, Her Majesty Dr. Lisa Sue. Can you two help, with, oh help us with that? Uh, yeah, we may be able to. We will, we will definitely uh, put in the request and represent that request <laughs> on behalf of that chronic condition that I also suffer of, from. Of, yeah, uh, that, I'm that afflicted is, as well. Yeah. That is rough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Robert's thank you like so Benjamin much. Benjamin Button, though, he just keeps getting younger every year, if you ask me. But <laughs> it's because I don't go outside. I avoid the sun, Frank. <laughs> that works. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Frank. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you, guys. Uh, yep. Yep. Oh, always good to have you. <laughs> Thanks for having See you, me, Frank. Guys. Take care. Uh, I, I do have a, a just one quick follow-up question for you, uh, Robert. Earlier, you were talking about the uh, uh, the the PCIe lanes. Uh, the, there was a, a couple questions about which which version uh, which PCIe Gen version is connected to the chipset itself. If you can clarify, is it four or five? Uh, that's a good question. I actually don't know. I'd have to go look at the chipset diagram. So stand by. Okay. Uh, and then we also have a ton of questions. Uh, Gordon and I w- was kind of curious about this too during the, the presentation on Sunday. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to use uh, Board Erica's uh, question as example. Does does doubling the L2 cache improve gaming performance uh, similar to the L3 cache? 
uh, and mm. obviously, you know, the with the 5800X3D, the, the push there was the L3 cache. Here, you're doubling the L2 cache. What, what is that good for? Is that good for gaming? Uh, you know, is it good for, for something else? Uh, at the highest level, it's an IPC benefit. Um, L2, so L2 cache is specific to one CPU core. It, just in case anybody out there didn't didn't know that, it's it's local memory for one core only. And there's always a trade-off uh, on L2 cache size. Um, if you make it bigger, uh, you increase the hit rate. That is how often you find the thing you're looking for in cache. But the drawback is you also increase latency and you also increase die size and you increase area. So it's like this fine balance between uh, just the right size to give you a performance benefit without going negative. So L2 cache, we did double it in Zen 4. It is an IPC benefit. It helps the core contain uh, internally more information. Overall, it improves throughput. And, and so it will be beneficial to multiple categories of workload, be it integer like gaming or more floating point type stuff like uh, like scientific and creative workloads. That's about all I can say for now, but um, I, I think you'll see that trend across time from multiple companies in the last couple of years that L2 cache sizes are, are going up because the process nodes are getting smaller and we can afford uh, in area the die size hit and uh, improve performance as a result. Okay, thank you. Uh, Gordon, you had something? I, I was going to ask, uh, I, well, I've got a few other questions, but I was actually, um, now, of course, I can't remember my question now because I was listening <laughs> to Robert talk. So. <laughs> yeah, it's oh. so mesmerizing. Uh, I, I do have a, a couple questions about the, uh, the Mendocino uh, design. Okay. Uh, Jose Vin Vincente Santos Aguilara. Uh, as uh, is Mendocino a new die design, or is it the same 6000 series die with disabled cores? Ooh, it's a it's a new die design. So uh, as as we're headed into late 22, early 23, uh, what you're seeing is AMD reinvesting its success in the mobile market into new die designs. So uh, last year, uh, well, this year we have uh, the product codenamed Rembrandt, the Ryzen 6000 series, kind of from top to bottom on our mobile stack. Um, and next year, that won't be the case. We'll have Mendocino for entry-level mainstream. Uh, we'll have the product we sort of uh, mentioned during our financial earnings for the last quarter, which is Phoenix for ultra-thin laptop or thin inline gaming. And then up top for gaming, we'll have the Dragon Range product. And those are all codenames. So we'll have three different die designs in play specialized for certain parts of the market and that will allow us to be more competitive not only on a cost basis but also on a uh, performance basis and a feature basis in each one of these markets that has very different um, both partner and buyer requirements on mendocino that's so it's already in a2 which is your newest ip for for mobile graphics right. does that sort of imply a lot of um compute units because or does it just simply, you know, will be, it'll be RDNA, but are we going to get a lot of compute units and make it a semi-capable gaming low-budget machine? Or is it just simply to enable the screen to turn on kind of stuff? It's the screen to turn on kind of stuff. I mean, we're talking $500-ish laptops, five, $500 to $700 at the very extreme end, right? These are, right. these are um, 
entry-level notebooks that people are going to buy for school, for day-to-day productivity, and they need video encode, they need dis- uh, multiple display support, but like, you know, gaming-level graphics is not a top priority for, for that market, so oh, we'll okay. uh, implement graphics accordingly. I was just thinking it's a good opportunity to attack Intel there because, you know, typically i3 has got pretty nerf graphics, you know, they cut sure. down on all that, and it feels like if, you know, it's, but it's a classic cheapskate person's like, why don't you give me, you know, big graphics at a low price? Because a lot of the i3, i5s, you know, mm-hmm. and Celerons, a lot of the low ends, you, you lose all the high end performance. But it's just, it's just, you you don't, I guess you, I guess the answer is you got to pay more for it, unfortunately. So, well, I suppose, yes, uh, literally, that's true. But at the, at the same time, it's like, what what are people actually buying in this space? It's one thing to hop on a forum and talk about wanting the cheap graphics at a low or the big graphics at a low price, but it's another thing to actually look at the the, the purchasing trends in that market uh, and what people are telling you they value. And in that space, battery life is overwhelmingly the number one care about for customers. Uh, number two is I don't want my system to stutter or hiccup, which is CPU performance in storage. Um, so like, there's a very clear laser focus in this market on, on specifications and IP that is, it's not graphics related. And so if we're balancing cost and trying to design the ideal chip, then we're going to go after what these people are asking for. That makes sense. I, I, it's a classic thing where I always kind of feel like, well, the things, the things that, uh, form people are telling me and the things that I think would be a good idea, uh, all the chip companies should collect all the information and then go the opposite direction because that's typically the correct indicator. Cause whenever I say like, Oh, I think this would be a great idea. It's like, you know, that's going to be wrong. So that's, uh, I, I do have a couple, uh, chipset and motherboard questions, uh, okay. lined up. The first one is from friend of the show, VC Jester. Uh, uh, it says, uh, with DDR5 being included in the new 7000 series chips, will the Infinity Fabric be able to still run at a one-to-one ratio with memory speed? Yes. And can you say what frequencies? No. <laughs> okay, that, that was easy. Uh, Dr. Ian Cutters, who uh, had to go eat some eat some food, but hopefully he hears us later, uh, asked, uh, why was Wi-Fi 6E included on the chipset features list if it's an optional extra and is simply a PCIe interface, well, oh, that's a good point. Um, you know, part of part of doing one of these shows is we have to uh, speak to many markets. Uh, there's uh, there's the enthusiast audience who wants to know more about speeds and feeds, and that's why we're here. And most of the questions have been around speeds and feeds. Uh, but then there, you know, there's partners in Taipei and around the world that tune into Computex for purchasing decisions uh, at, um, you know, they could be pre-built PC manufacturers, they could be system integrators. Uh, they also look to our announcements, both publicly and privately, as, as guidance for how to think about their future, their future roadmap. So wireless connectivity is always important, but growing more and more important all the time. And it's important for us to communicate uh, to certain audiences that we have this validated componentry available, that it will 
exist in the ecosystem at that time, that we have the partnerships and the supply chain lined up to enable it. So that's why it ultimately lands on a, a chipset and, and platform slide, because it kind of, I mean, taxonomically, it just falls in the bucket of <laughs> chipset stuff, but uh, it helps us advertise certain capabilities. No, it's funny, because if you didn't say it had Wi-Fi 6C, then the first question would be, why don't you have Wi-Fi 6C? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, Matt over on Discord asked, uh, based on the announcements, is it currently reported uh, that B650 motherboards do not support overclocking? Uh, can Robert speak to that? That's one of those great examples of, because we didn't say something, people assumed that it didn't exist. Uh, B650 does overclock, just like B550 overclocked. Uh, that, that is, you know, the, the X50 chipsets have done that since Zen 1 and will in the Zen 4 era. So that is another vote in favor of putting Wi-Fi 6E on a slide, because if you don't, people ask you questions like that. <laughs> why Why wasn't on there? You're right. I mean, that's exactly, I, I sort of I, I was sort of guessing that it would be similar because, again, it was on the previous uh, version. Yeah. But I figure, you know, the, it'll have overclocking. It won't be locked out. But clearly, yeah. you're going to get the very best overclocking on the X670E, which is going to have the beefiest VRMs and the most. That's right. You know, it's just a standard, you know, they, they throw the kitchen sink into the top end. You can still do it on the lower end board. You'll still be able to overclock somewhat, but it's not going to get yeah. you, right? I mean, that's similar. Okay. No but why does it have, strategy. why no Wi-Fi 6C and B550? That was what I want to know. So that's. Uh, there's no reason that they couldn't slap 6E on there. Uh, but... As Ian pointed out, it's just a companion controller. And I know we're just we're just for folks who are not getting that we're just making fun of the fact that it's just PC it's just add in yeah, but just uh, add in controller. Uh, I have to ask this question. This came up in the chat the other day too, and I don't this for some reason really irks some people. So I'm going to ask it: Is there right. a fan on the chipset for X670? Nope. Hmm. Okay. I guess I go ahead, Adam. Sorry. But once again easy answer uh, uh kraken over on discord asked uh is ryzen 7000 bringing any new xfr infinity fabric and pbo features that you can talk about uh, you should expect the overclocking features that exist today to carry forward into the ryzen 7000 series and and function uh as they do today in terms of what features are available and how to use them Okay. Can I can I ask yeah. about the demo you did? Sure. So, and I will have to say, I the five point five gigahertz that's pretty impressive. I mean, both of them were sort of like perfect. I think because you you were able to hit the high clocks. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a to me like okay, that's 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 needed to go up against uh, the competition. But then also to get thirty one percent over, you know, twelve nine hundred K in Blender that was that was also impressive uh, in itself. Was it intentionally? Was Blender kind of a throwback to the original Zen demo? Because that was Blender rendering a Ryzen a CPU image. Was that intentionally picked to mirror that? Or it's just simply, oh, we came up, you know? No, it's, it's intentional. Uh, intentional for a couple of reasons. One, because, yes, it's a callback to a, uh, a through line that we've had for a long time. We've been using Blender for a long time. Um, but B, uh, Blender is free. So eventually there will come a time when people will be able to go validate our numbers without paying any money to do it. And that's just as important. And so that was the other factor 
uh, of choosing Blender versus some other not free rendering application. So we'll be able to, I mean, because originally that um, Zen demo was released as a, as a, as a workload slash benchmark. Yep. Or is it being considered for this one too? It is. Okay. Can't mm -hmm. wait for it. Mm -hmm. Although I will say uh, the differences that we saw numbers wise on that scene versus any of the other free ones that are available on the Blender Foundation website, the numbers are similar. So you don't need to wait for that scene. Hmm. Okay. No, I mean, that's, that's, again, is like, you never, you never know whether it's going to translate to everything else, but it mm -hmm. sounds like you're pretty confident in the, in the multi-threaded performance of this then. Yes. Extremely confident. Hmm. Uh, Master Procrastinator over on, on Discord asks, uh, with previous Zen launches, uh, AMD always emphasized the IPC uplift compared to the previous gen. This time mm -hmm. only single threaded uplift. What are you hiding? Is the uplift attributable to clock speed and L2 cache increase only, or is IPC no longer important? What you've seen from AMD with every launch is that we've always broken down for people the exact mix of IPC versus frequency contribution. We will do that, not at Computex, but we'll do that over the summer. You'll you'll under we will pick apart frequency versus Zen 4 IPC and give you both figures. Uh, we chose single thread performance for Computex because it's the most directly relatable to how people uh, view and use their CPUs on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. Uh, Red Rock, uh, th there's a couple questions about uh, the AM5. Uh, Red Rock asks, uh, what is AMD uh, going to, s or I'm sorry, what are, hmm. Uh, how is AMD going to sell to a lower end of the market as AM5 plus DDR5 will be relatively expensive? Well, I think one of the, the topics that uh, Lisa touched on in her portion of the keynote is that AM4 is by no means done. Just because AM5 is here doesn't mean AM4 is end of life. So uh, for very entry level or even mainstream price points, Socket AM4 is perfectly appropriate uh, from both the price and performance perspective. And the mix between the two sockets will evolve over time. And I, I can't speculate on what it's going to be in 2022 or three or four, but that is the, the overall intent or strategy for, for a little while. Okay. And the, the, the other one real quick. Um, oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, uh, Dark Helmet asked, uh, what is AMD going to uh, do to prevent early teething pains with AM5 and DDR5 like another company is currently experiencing with DDR5 uh, and like AMD experienced with Zen 1 and DDR4? Well, DDR5 is from... Um, how do I do this without offending every engineer on the planet? Like, DDR5 is not entirely dissimilar from DDR4 in terms of the, the practices and habits that you need to go through to get a smooth experience. Uh, so qualification, testing, we learned a lot from Zen 1, I'll just say that. Uh, and you saw very rapid evolution over time on socket AM4 as we move from Zen 2 to 3. Uh, so all of those lessons are translatable to DDR5. Another thing that we have to do on the back end is talk to all the memory suppliers, memory vendors, module makers to ensure that there is sufficient supply in the time frame we want to launch. We've had those discussions. 
Uh, we're getting very healthy signals from the market about component availability. And the last thing, uh, one of the reasons why we're all in on DDR5 is there's a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario going on in the market right now. To bring prices down, you need demand, but our competitor chose to have D4 and D5 available on the same platform, which of course everybody's gonna gravitate to DDR4. So there's some amount of demand needs to be created and it's not being made right now. And that will help with economy of scale as well. Uh, we're big believers in DDR5, it's a fantastic technology. It's the right thing to do for the Ryzen 7000 series, but um, what we learned from DDR4 equally applies. I mean, it's also good to be, I mean, it's, it feels like it's always good to be the sort of second, your memory controller probably be uh, a little more baked than the first, first one to go into the room is always, is always the hardest one. It feels like so. It's challenging. Yeah. I mean, this, it's, it feels like we should expect a, a pretty mature memory controller. Things are looking good. Things are looking good. Okay, uh, I, I have a couple questions uh, left for me, and uh, uh, I know we got to get you out of here. Uh, Curtis Horn gave us a twenty dollars super chat. Thank you so much. Oh, Said, uh, so uh, posing this as a which one uh, do you think will hit first? Do you think future games will take advantage of higher core counts or higher L three cache in the future? Which which I believe. And, and this, it's not wholly intentional either. I believe that cache capacities will have the edge uh, because it doesn't require a lot of intention on behalf of the developer. So from a software development point of view, multi-threading, it's hard. It's hard. And there's in a game, there's only so many threads to go around. You've got AI, sound, physics, rendering, maybe a couple render threads, um, that's it, right? There's not many threads in a game. So if you position that against the amount of data games are constantly fetching all the time, textures, sounds, models, whatever, uh, and it's not predictable because the player's input is potentially random, that is in favor of larger cache sizes because you are eliminating fetch penalties on the CPU. Um, so I think naturally cash has a, has a benefit versus core count. And that is one of the reasons why we are investing in 3d V cash type technologies, because we know there's a, a very straightforward benefit that requires no effort on the part of the developer. It's just sort of a natural lifting of, uh, lifting of the boats. Okay, good. Gordon, do you have any, any more? Uh, I got it. I got a couple uh, last house cleaning ones, and I just want to make sure it's right because I'm assuming it is as you said, but I also I just want to make sure this is right. AM5 uh, is compatible with AM4 coolers. Uh, you yep. said that many times. Does that mean no need for an additional mount? Like, because you know you could parse that to say no, is this compatible with the cooler? But you do have to get a different mount. So it's the same Z height and everything. Like, yep. pop it in there. Yeah, and in fact, that, that's the whole reason why uh, the Ryzen 7000 series looks so unique compared to other past CPUs from like a, a heat spreader point of view. Uh, as we switch to LGA, actually start with an AM4 CPU. If you flip it over, in the center of that pins 
there's a bunch of uh, surface-mounted capacitors. Uh, and when we switch to LGA, uh, those pins cover, or those pads cover the whole bottom of the CPU. So if we want to keep the same package size, Z-height, those capacitors needed to move somewhere else. So they move to the top of the package. Well, if you have a heat spreader that covers the whole package, then you can't move them to the top. So we had to make little cutouts in the heat spreader to make room. And that means socket AM5 has exact same physical chip dimensions, despite many more pins uh, than uh, it has the same physical size, despite many more pins. And that allows cooler compatibility, uh, has the same keep out around the socket, same Z height. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that to me is amazing. I it's funny. I was I was I was showing Adam. We have an original cooler that was that was like from the Enforce days um, at mm-hmm. the office, and I suspect that will actually fit onto an AM5 socket. <laughs> like we're talking AM2 yeah. or something. I don't know. It's it's ancient. So, but the, it's got the exact same mounting system from back That's then. Crazy. I, I suspect it might fit, so that might be a fun little exercise. That that's an awesome feature, I have to say, because clearly it's been a problem for people to get the uh, the mounts for yeah. um, for competing um, uh, co- competing uh, solutions, as you know, you can guess. And then I guess there's also been some weird issues that have been induced into it too. So mm-hmm. uh, that's that's good to hear. Uh, my other question, and I know this really goes to. Uh, board vendors, not you necessarily, but do we have any just general hint of where the board prices are going to fall? Because clearly, you know, a lot of these new technologies with PCIe 5 and DDR5 and the layer trace, the the, the, the board layers it may require have kind of amped up prices. Do we think prices are going to go up or stay with within reason? I mean, considering, of course, the world mm. economy right now, so. I honestly don't know. I, I think my colleagues who work in that department at AMD would tell me it's too soon to tell. Okay. Uh, I think we'll have a better sense over the summer, the midsummer here. Well, cool. to, that, to that same thing, I, I'm sure you can tell us uh, this here. But, you know, people were asking about the price of Ryzen 7000. You can just you can just tell us now, right? Oh yeah, sure. I got the price list right here. No. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's somewhere between one and ten thousand dollars. <laughs> one one dollar and ten thousand dollars, somewhere oh. in that range. Okay, sounds like a deal. <laughs> yeah. the, more, the more you buy, the more you save, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, of course. Uh, okay, uh, last question for me uh, from a, uh, a very dear friend of the show, Showback Tech, asks, uh, my genuine concern is what real-world steps are is AMD taking to resaturate the market, and will those still steps help AIB partners have overstock? Can you repeat the question? I think I missed a couple words in there. Uh, what is AMD doing to help uh, saturate the market with product? Mm. You know, and what steps are you taking to to make sure AIB partners will have stock as well? So GPU side question. It sounds GPU like. side. It sounds yeah, yeah, like. Yep. Unfortunately, I don't work with graphics. I don't. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, how how could that apply to CPUs as well? I mean, luckily it feels like there is pretty good stock, but you know, who who knows? Well, I think it's a a two-part answer. So, well, three-part. Let me preface this by saying I don't work in supply and logistics at AMD, so I'm like the least qualified person to talk about this, but I'll, I'll take a run at it in the way, in, with the stuff that I know. Um, part one is building up supply before you launch. And yes, lead time are longer across the whole industry for every category of electronic, 
uh, be it a car, a watch, a smartphone, PC, whatever. It's all longer lead times, but building up supply before launch. But the other thing is the last two years have been the biggest demand cycle in PC history. Personal computers have been around for 30 to 40 years and never has there been more demand, more sellout, more units sold than the last two years. How could anybody have foreseen that on top of a pandemic, especially in a supply chain that is largely uh, just in time, right? It's, it's just this amazing collision of unexpected events. And I don't necessarily mean amazing in a good way, but it's unexpected events produced this outcome across a, a wide number of industries. So there's one part we can help with, which is just amassing supply and making sure it's available. But the other part is we can't, you know, can't just fix uh, demand or bring it back to like a steady state level. It, that will take longer. And that's actually, it's amazing that I just want to point out this slide that AMD showed off at Computex. These are internal numbers, but I'm, I'm sure it's based on your partners, but 24% PC unit growth last two years, 349 million PCs shipped in 2021, and 900 million PCs shipped in the last three years. Yeah. So that's just, PC is dead, remember, is the, I think, right. is the, is the uh, nod, totally wrong, so. <laughs> PC is dead, asterisk, again, 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 again <laughs> and so on. <laughs> well, awesome. This is, I, again, thanks for being a you know, good sport, being here, taking all the questions. Um, we're going to let you go because I know it's, it's getting late there and, you know, you've just really answered just about every question we've thrown at you to the, right. as much as you can. So we do appreciate you being here. And, and uh, this looks like 2022 is going to be pretty crazy. So I think everybody's excited for it. So it's going to be a good year for hardware. I'm excited. It's the best thing, right? No matter who wins or loses, it's just, you know, you're just there to see the competition. So I, I think that's that's, right. people need to appreciate that from everybody. So mm -hmm. should I take us out, Adam? Yep, let's do it. So check back Thursday because we're going to have another show where we're going to talk about everything we've seen so far. For your fix of PC talk on the full nerd, for audio listeners, subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. And every time you do, please de do leave a review. Every time you do, Gordon throws out a Planet of the Apes reference, saying questions and comments to the full nerd at PCWorld.com. Thanks for coming. I'm Gordon Ung with Robert Halleck of AMD. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. I'll say bye for Frank, who left earlier, Frank Azor. And uh, Adam Patrick Murray's going to hit the off switch. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for showing up and, and answering all the questions. Uh, hope to have you on soon to, to talk more about it. So thanks, that, no And th thanks, everyone, for putting in your awesome questions. Uh, we will check you uh, out later on, uh, on Thursday. So when we recap Computex, thank you so much. We will see you later. Bye.